we will um, I'll ask our gold sponsor, Bob Bush from Colomos, to introduce our keynote speaker. Thank you all again. Thank you, Annie. It's good to have everybody back uh, in a nice setting like this. So uh, uh, the keynote speaker um, is a return performer. Uh, congratulations. Uh, your outlook, uh, in short, you nailed it last year. So uh, we're going to see how well you do for 2023, Jan. <laughs> um, using the example of railroad stocks, his favorite disruptive technology, he said growth stocks and crypto were overvalued. He also liked what he called, quote, the most painful investment, commodity equities. Uh, and we know that energy is outperformed this year. Uh, Jan, well, what do you have in your crystal ball for 2023? Well, I guess we're going to find out, right? So um, Jan Van Eck is president and CEO of Van Eck Associates Corporation, uh, a global asset management firm headquartered here in New York. He joined the firm in 1991, became CEO in 2010. At the core of Van Eck lies a strong commitment to identifying major trends that will underpin long-term opportunities in investor portfolios. Mr. Van Eck founded um, the firm's ETF business in 2006 and is currently one of the largest ETP families worldwide. Uh, Mr. Van Eck has created investor solutions across numerous asset classes, including global equities and fixed income, emerging markets, and commodity-related strategies, and uh, since 2017 has led the firm's efforts in researching and advocating for digital assets. Uh, Mr. Van Eck holds a JD from Stanford University and graduated from Phi, he graduated Phi Kappa Beta uh, from Williams College. So please uh, give a warm welcome um, to Mr. Jan Van Eck. Thanks, Bob. Uh, it's great to see everyone again live uh, and to, to uh, this is always the funnest, I think, is to talk about macro, right? This is all, I can't be wrong because no one knows about their future, and if I'm wrong, I won't be here next year, so <laughs> it's really easy. Um, so just a, a little bit more about the perspective I'm bringing. Uh, no one knows the future, uh, but we have a great toolkit in terms of history. So I am a little bit of a history lover. I teach our 30 summer interns, the 16-unit class in American history and finance because it's all a game, and I just like to say, well, how's the game played, right? So uh, I love history. I love podcasts. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn as well if you want to follow me uh, or send me happy or not happy comments. Um, so, you know, kind of I'm not a portfolio manager, but I sit with our PMs. We have an active uh, portfolio management business. And about four years ago, I sort of tried to summarize their thoughts and, and give our outlook. And so that's what I've been doing. My views are on our website. And in fact, this, I'm very frustrated because they're not sharing my slides today. But if you want to see my slides, just go to the homepage of vanek.com. You'll see my outlook and the slides and the deck are in there. It even says capital links. So I don't care if you pull out your phones if you want to look at some of the slides. So my message today is really simple, buy bonds. Um, I, I uh, was fortunate enough just to sit next to Barry. And I think that. We still live in this era of everyone loves equities. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's when is the Fed going to pivot? When can we get that bear mar bull market going? You know, I told my 
my tennis pro the other day, I'm really bullish on bonds, and he just looked at me and I was so disgusted because he wanted to stock tip because he wanted to make 50%. Like, I don't think that's the environment. So let me try to convince you why I think that's not the environment that we're living in. Um, and, and just to take you back before going through you know, some of the macro stuff, I was uh, fortunate enough to sit next to Barry and we were talking about the 1970s. Um, and he said, well, you know, stocks kept going down every day and the one day that the lights were green, they thought the machine was broken. Um, and then uh, he said, well, it we knew it was a turn when Merrill took away the touchtone phones because they couldn't afford them and put in back the rotary dial phones. Uh, my favorite story is when one of our wholesalers told me that, in the, you know, that he was a retail broker in the 70s and they were so bored an afternoon and no one was interested in investing so they tried to give away 50 shares of General Electric. Guess what? They couldn't do it all afternoon. No one would accept free stock. Now you think that's bad. Go back to the 1920s when it was considered fiduciarily irresponsible to invest in stocks when you're investing other people's money. So it's been way b bad and when you see these bad sort of, uh, you know, kind of market sentiment indicators, I would say you ain't, you ain't really seen nothing. All right, so why, uh, why shouldn't we uh, start buying and nibbling on stocks right now? Because you've got absolutely everything going against you. You've got monetary, you've got fiscal, and you've got global growth. So every macro thing is absolutely in your face. So let's talk about the Fed. Um, now, I'm not gonna talk about the Fed the way everyone talks about the Fed. Let me just make a couple of points. Inflation, I know this is weird coming from a commodities manager. Inflation is not commodity prices. I know everyone triggers off of gasoline and oil. But the real thing that destroys financial market valuations is wage inflation. Because if you look at the inputs to our economy, we're a services economy. And almost labor costs really dominate everything else. And frankly, commodities are generally mean reverting. So what the Fed is fighting is the workers at McDonald's want a 5% increase. And then everyone that eats at McDonald's wants a 5% increase. And then, you know, those things are bought by the workers at McDonald's and then they want a wage increase. So it just doesn't stop. And that cycle is really what the Fed, and I think the Fed is fighting against in the 1970s. Um, and we've got a long ways. You know, part of, I think, having a historical perspective is when are we gonna know this? We are not going to know whether the labor market has loosened probably for three to, you know, six to 12 months earliest, I would say, right? We're still at tight, tight labor markets. And I think post-pandemic, no one understands the labor market, I would argue. so. That's number one. And then the other noise, 80% you're getting these bad inflation numbers and all this, is energy prices. I don't know if you saw this chart, it was great on social media. Do you know that we've spent down half of our strategic petroleum reserve this year? Half, meaning if we continue at this rate, we got no strategic petroleum reserve left. This was something that we, in, in a year, this was built up over 40 years, since 1980s, late, late 70s. So we don't really know what oil prices are. I mean, you think they're high now? You know, we really just don't know. So oil and, and gasoline. So all these signals that are in the economy, I think are very misleading and the Fed uh, is, is fighting this. And so they're also doing this really fun thing this quarter 
which is something they've only done once before in their history, and it didn't work out so well, and that's quantitative tightening. So the Fed balance sheet, you look at history, it's almost never shrunk. And the way I put it is, okay, they're going into a really bad neighborhood. I don't want to get in that car, right? So, and I think equities get, get hurt. So you've got tight monetary policy. Um, let's talk about fiscal. Uh, you don't need a crystal ball to figure out that the midterms are likely that, you know, the Republicans will get one house. And even if they don't, even if the Democrats, sw you know, keep both houses, Larry Summers has told everybody, and he's a Democrat, stop spending money because that's leading to inflation, right? And inflation is the number one concern of voters. So it's very unlikely that we're going to have big spending packages going, uh, going forward, right? So we've got tight monetary, and then we've got tight fiscal. Um, let's talk about global growth, and I think this is a, this is a very interesting factoid. Um, so I've traveled a lot to China over the last 30 years. You know, my base case is China growth is absolutely over. Like you think about, and, and let me tell you why that's important. U.S. and China were the only contributors really to global growth over the last several decades. So China is gone. Now, you know, why do, why do I say that? And, and I don't put this publicly, by the way, so that's why we're amongst friends. Um, but at the, at the one, one major factoid that I really like, and I hope you remember, is that, so today's China's population is 1.3 billion. Does anyone know what it's going to be in 2100? Yeah, a lot, not, yeah, about half that, 800 million. So they are now peaking, and you cannot stop because of their one-child policy. This is an absolute certainty. As soon as you know, as much as this conference will happen next year, China's po you know working population will shrink next year, and they're they're a they're going to age, right? So all those benefits and dependencies and spending that Japan is experiencing now is starting and is not going to stop for China. So that's one. But I would also say, listen, they have anti-government policies. They have. COVID, I think, is a minor factor. The property, um, you know, property has happened partially because of demographics. I mean, it's been wealth and it's been urbanization. So, I, you know, I look around the world, we're, we have no global growth, right? So that's kind of my, my big picture. No monetary, tight monetary, you can argue, but no, no fiscal, and we've got a global recession. Obviously, Europe is not going to be pulling us out of global growth. So, um, I think we don't know what's going to happen to corporate profits going forward. I mean, we're going to find out this month. We'll find out in January and find out next April. But we just haven't lived through this economic environment. And I just, you look at stocks that have earnings surprises or bad pre-announcements, it's 20% off the top, right? So I, I, I really want to wait to see that as my best, um, you know, kind of indicator. So what got me super excited, you're like, Jan, I know all that. Okay, fine. Now let me talk about something that happened uh, in the last 100 years. What was the worst decade for interest rates and bonds in the last 100 years? Sorry? 70s, thank you. 1970s, which, by the way, you can't find on a lot of uh, you know, financial information systems, and they didn't have dividend indices back then, and that's a whole separate thing about, you know, get, getting access to information. So, so I was like, you know, we're a commodities and gold shop, right? We want the Fed to pivot more than anything, right? Then, you know, the Fed pivots and our asset AUM is up 20% in a month. 
what happens if the Fed doesn't pivot? And it's, but it's the kind of the 70s all over again. What was the best asset class? Bonds. I'm like, how could bonds, this is what blew my mind, how could worst interest rates, right? Interest rates went from 2% to 20% pretty much over that decade. How could bonds beat stocks? And with a lot less volatility. Um, and it's just because once you get to higher interest rates, right? 1% to 2% is very painful. 1% to 3%, very painful as we know year to date. But once you start getting up there, 4%, 5%, you know, you're, you're earning a lot of interest, and if you reinvest it, it really protects your portfolio. And if you're looking at your own client statements or you're looking at client statements, bonds are not going to be the worst thing in the world, I would argue. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from, and my conviction comes from the 1970s. I, you know, coming into the year, look, whatever inflation is, it, it, it was going to be way above 4%, so our house view was, you're going to have interest rates go to 4%. But at a certain point, why not start buying bonds? Now, funnily enough, I, I don't know if you've heard this or you've said it or done it yourself, is, oh, I'll buy, you know, treasuries, short-term treasuries at 4%. I don't know, my view is just buy everything. You know, Barry does converts, buy converts. Everything has been destroyed. And, you know, I think it's just relatively cheap when I look within the financial market. So, um, that's, that's kind of my, my macro outlook. Uh, for those of you who think the Fed will pivot um, and are very uh, disappointed in gold, as some of our clients are, I would just give you, for the previous inflationary cycles of the 70s and the 2000s, the for the first five years of those cycles, the top performing asset class was commodities. In the second five years, commodities were kind of flat and gold took off. So. You know, if the Fed does pivot, you know, don't throw stuff at me next year, but, you know, uh, you know, gold will do well. Um, and so we'll, we'll, just, we'll just have to see. I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying I, I don't think they'll know whether inflation has been solved for a while. And in the meantime, you know, you get, you get to clip the coupons. So that's basically it. Um, I don't know about you all, I'll just say this, last year within the financial markets, they were unbelievably distorted, right? Go growth was here and value was here. I guess what I would say is I don't see a lot of distortions within the financial markets right now. I'd buy all kinds of fixed income, right? I'd buy high yield. I don't care if we have a mini recession and get some strike down, you know, some, some write-offs. Um, and in the equity markets, Sure, I mean, energy equities are really cheap, and I do like them. I mean, I would still buy them because of what I said before, but, um, you know, I don't see a lot of distortions in equities either, um, except for, in general, I think they're kind of uh, overvalued. So, uh, you know, so that's, that's basically, um, you know, my view. So how, it, you know, what I would say is tight monetary, tight fiscal, how could I be wrong on global growth? Well, if Brazil and India and Indonesia, which have the right kind of demographics, can continue to grow and show global leadership, that's possible. So, um, you know, so it's, you know, I'm not all doom and gloom. I'm just saying, you know, right now, it's, you've got a lot of stuff, you know, not working in your favor. And I still think sentiment is too bullish. I think people are looking for the, the bull market. They haven't given up yet. So that's, that's kind of my basic thing. Listen, I'm happy to take questions, um, and thanks for giving me the platform.
will they what pivot? Oh, they won't pivot. Yes. And the mistakes of last year, right? They were buying mortgage bonds in the hottest housing market. So I think they're, they're yes, I think they're focused on the 70s. That's exactly right. Um, and so I think, you know, my dad always say, sometimes just take people at their word, right? <laughs> I mean, they can't be more clear. So I think if you're holding your breath for a pivot, you're going to run out of oxygen, you know? So that's, yeah, that's my view. So sometimes timing just, t you know, we're very impatient, right, as Americans, and I just think it's going to take a while. So, yeah. Sure. Uh, number one, I think the um, Bill Gates, I mentioned this last year, Bill Gates wrote this book about climate change, and he basically said we need all of the above to get to net carbon neutral. Um, I'm not, con the mansion, I call it the mansion bill, um, was all of the above, and even though I'm, I'm a Republican, I was very happy with that because I think it was just much more realistic. Um, in terms of all the different solutions that are needed. Now, that's, I know that was, wasn't your specific question. We, I, lo we lo I love energy stocks. I still love energy stocks um, because I think that the supply-demand setup is unbelievable. You're coming big picture, right? We had a 10-year bear market in commodities. All the companies were told, don't produce, don't produce, right? They were, and now they're run by CFOs. They're not run by engineers. And so even, even if Washington were friendlier, they're not going to go crazy on CapEx. Activity, energy activity growth, it needs, like, depletion is about 9% a year, I've, I've been told by my expert friend, uh, colleagues, and we're only, we have only up CapEx by about 5% a year. So we're still falling behind in the supply-demand dynamics for oil. So top performing sector for next year. Yeah. Oil services uh, earnings should be up 20% next year, and and you know earnings in this year would be down a lot worse if it weren't for energy companies. I mean, I, I, I would, first of all, we're generally energy independent now, right? So I, we're, we're okay, I would say, but it's prices globally because we live in a global economy. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my, you know, that's kind of my perspective on that. I, I, let me give you a juxtaposition. <clears throat> in the 1970s, for those of us who lived through it, um, there, were country, there was a country in Europe that said, I really don't want to be so dependent on the Middle East. So I am completely going to change what, how I get electricity. And that was France. And they went to 90%, sorry, 70 plus percent nuclear, right? I don't see that conviction now, right? We were starting from such an 
I'll call it, you know, environmentally conscious mindset, I don't see any, I see people barely thinking about restarting their nuclear plants, much less really making a major shift in policy. That's, I don't see that now. And I'm, I, I love Europe, but I don't see that from any European country yet either, even though the, they're at the tip of the spear. So, yeah. You know, listen, it's, it's such a painful trade, like I said last year, the commodity equities. Um, I, 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 I think a global recession has been priced into them, so I don't know how bad, how wor worse the news can get. Uh, I, I do think so, yeah, but it's, um, it's just painful. <laughs> it's just painful because every time there's a concern about global growth, they get smacked, you know. So, um, yes, but you have, to, you have to really endure it. It's going to be years, right? So I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I think it's actually a good point that, you know, technical breakthroughs are a little bit unpredictable, and if a cost curve moves, you can have a dramatic change in behavior, and that's what happened with solar, right? When solar got cheaper, then adoption dramatically changed, regardless of government subsidies. So um, I, I don't have a crystal ball on the technologies. That's a huge caveat, but it's certainly going to take five or ten years. I mean, even if tobacco, so last year, like energy stocks were like tobacco stocks. That's what I said, basically, right? People stopped smoking, people stopped using oil, uh, but they were still so cheap. I mean, some of them were at three or four times earnings. I mean, that's crazy. I, I was like, if I had enough money, I'd just take them private. But, you know, people, there's no money for that. Yes. Uh, so, I don't know, my two, my two comments, because I'm bullish Bitcoin, as you know. Um, I would say, been bullish since 2017. We hit all-time highs last year. This pullback has been way worse than I expected. Um, you have, uh, I, I still think that Bitcoin is a gold alternative. I think anyone who wanted to buy Bitcoin now owns it already, so it's less of a headwind for gold. Um, if the Fed pivots, they'll be great. But if the Fed doesn't pivot, which is my base case, they'll kind of, you know, meander. Uh, the, the not enough information. So the, in, you know, one of the dreams of crypto enthusiasts <coughs> is to disrupt the payments, right? So <coughs> everything here probably uh, Mastercard and Visa took. They're not in the room. I'm sure took two two point nine. Took two point nine percent. They take 2.9% on so much of the American economy, which is insane, right? So the question is, can crypto disrupt that? Not, not clear yet. Ethereum's too expensive. They haven't really got a scaling solution, but I've, I've spent half of my waking time thinking about it and looking for it, so un unknowable. But I wouldn't rule out technology. Because long, long term, we have borrowed way too much money. 
<coughs> and uh, you know, unless I'm, so I gotta tell you the gold story, right? So um, my father in 1968, I'll give you the short version, basically sold the only fund he was managing and bought gold mining shares uh, with 80% of the portfolio. Gold was fixed at $35 an ounce. Gold had been fixed against the dollar for the entirety of US history. So 170, 80 years at that point, right? And he was expecting some kind of major change and that's why I love history because he didn't care about American history. He would come to the dinner table and talk about the Ottomans. Did you know why the Ottomans had the longest empire? Because they used gold for the longest amount of time. So eventually we have way too much debt in this country, right? All paper currencies go to zero eventually because governments can't help themselves, especially reserve currencies. Will that be in my lifetime? I don't know. That's why I can't give you a time frame, but absolutely gold and Bitcoin, I think, will be part of people's portfolios if, if and when that happens. I love the United States. I, you know, I think they've got a long runway, but it's just we have a lot of debt. The government has a lot of debt right now, so I don't know when that happens, so. That's the, that's the story. Well, I think um, just for financial services, payments, number one, meaning you can go, you can just send money or value cheaper than through the traditional banking system and instantaneously. As I said, we're, we don't know if that will happen, but it, it should happen at some point. Um, I guess, you know, the way crypto people frame it, these new technologies like gaming and the metaverse and all that kind of stuff, is, <coughs> excuse me, uh, web three dot, you know, web three. They say the internet was web two, right? Facebook and Amazon and all that. And everything built on crypto is web three. Um, I, I guess my default is probably, it's gonna be web 2.5, right? Where Instagram will incorporate NFTs and other kind of crypto technology um, into their, existing products because they've got the tens of billions of users and they can sooner or later just take the capital and brute force it. So um, does that answer your question or a little bit? Well, it <coughs> entertainment, uh, gaming, um, lo lo lots of things that you do using the big giants uh, now, like Facebook, social media, all that kind of stuff, that could happen in, in a, on crypto, you know, using crypto. So um, that's the question. Will Mark Zuckerberg go to the metaverse faster and adopt sort of crypto capabilities? Maybe. The one, the one, um, one thing I want to flag is because, um, believe it or not, an advisor to the New York State crypto regulator um, is Brazil. Uh, Brazil is um, one of the leading, their regulators are approaching the world to tokenize their whole economy to reduce costs for end consumers. They want to tokenize real estate, right? Get rid of title insurance. Um, who, needs, who needs that in, in an economy? Uh, they created an interbank payments network that's free called PIX where you can send money to, from your account, bank account, to anyone's bank account, and the central bank 
set up the technology. They enabled it, and now it's free. So this technology is useful. It's just we have to compete against the entrenched uh, interests. So I just like to, I think what they're doing is really interesting. I just, I don't have, you know, other than going from the most loved to the most hated is fast. Um, yeah, no, I have no particular insights. Um, I don't know if I'd be buying SMH right now, no, no view. No, no big insights. I just want to repeat what I said before, which is I don't think we understand what's happening in our labor market right now. I mean, I, like policymakers will say what I just said, but I think it's really worth, it's, I th this pandemic I think has could have changed people's behaviors, right, in a major way. Uh, we were talking about riding the subway and you know, someone, people are afraid of crime on the subways, which we get, but we looked at the statistics, crime is actually flat. But the perception is much different. So um, I think that's just true for so many things. We visited one of our big vendors in Boston, and the, it was their, you know, they have a big work from home policy, but everyone was supposed to be working that week. Like 10% of the people were in the office. They can't make them go in. So I just think that's a, just reflective of this, one of the economic uncertainties because the Fed is fighting it, right? If, it's interesting to talk about the gig economy, but it's important if the Fed, if your central bank is trying to get basically unemployment up, wage inflation down, but they don't really know what they're, like no one really knows how the labor market's gonna react. So that's why I just think it's gonna take a long time. No idea, no idea, no idea. I mean, uh, you know, the contrarian me thinks the dollar is, you know, especially with the Barron's headline last weekend, the Barron's featured the strong dollar as his cover story. And whenever, you know, magazines do that, you kind of want to sell your dollars. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I really, I, 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 that's timing and investments is the super hardest thing, right? I have no idea, no idea, so. I think, um, thank you very much for your time and attention. And uh, if you have questions, I'm gonna be around, but I really appreciate the honor of you know, getting the mic and, and talking about macro. So thank you. Thank you, Jan, for your history lessons and your insight. Thank you.